Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Overscheduler Garasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This week, I'm getting into painting Star Wars miniatures. Yes, I still do have dozens of Warhammer models entirely untouched. I don't see why that's relevant. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be reading the short story Vasilisa Maligna from Alexandra Kolontai's Love of the Worker Bees, which focuses primarily on the lives of women in the early Soviet Union. But before we get into our show, we wanted to give a quick shout out to our two newest patrons, Jesse and Lou. Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you're interested in helping out the show, like Jesse and Lou, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We put a lot of work into our tiers and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you're not able to financially support us at the moment, but you still want to support in some way your favorite podcast, you can leave us a nice review over on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates. But before we get into the reading today, Matt, I have an important question for you. Yes. What are you drinking? So I'm going to be a little beer repeater here. I'm, I'm drinking once again the escapist American ale from Temperance Beer Company here in Evanston, which I just, it, it's, it's okay to repeat it because it is such a good beer. It's honestly one of my favorites that I've had in a while on the show. No reason not to enjoy it twice. That's right. What, do you, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, well, I am drinking <laughs> the Machine Baltic Porter, which, yes, is a reference to the comedy uh, routine that you're thinking of. Um, ha ha ha. i'll go into more uh detail about this next episode because i forgot we recorded a very special episode with a secret guest whose name is on our discord announcements but uh i forgot that that one was releasing later than this one so i introduced it in full as if it was the first time so Mm -hmm. whoops uh shows how good we are at this (laughs) (laughs) oh well um why why are you an overscheduler this week matt Oh, because I, I scheduled too many podcast-related things, um, because I was trying to, to schedule a bunch of stuff during my spring break week, and then I realized that not everyone has spring break like me and uh, real adults work during the week. So I just, instead of having a lot of things during the week spread out, I just have too much on my weekends. So, you know. Well, you know, it, it's been a good, it's been a good uh, marathon so far. Right? It's really, I feel like it's a good endurance test. Yeah. Yeah. I, when we finished recording the other night, I just drank like several bottles of water. My girlfriend was like, are you okay? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> How's the Star Wars miniature painting world treating you? It's, it's good. I really enjoy it. It's um, a little bit less, at least the models I have are not as intricate as a lot of my Warhammer models. So mm-hmm. it's a bit more forgiving. And so That's it's good. a little bit less stress inducing because of my... Uh, obsession making every single detail good mm-hmm. not not quite put me over the edge like every single warhammer model does and uh i'm finally getting to you get some good use out of my airbrush so finally we've been waiting for the airbrush content <laughs> i only bought them because i was they're like clone troopers were cheap but now i'm kind of thinking about buying the actual star wars legion game mm-hmm. uh which was only me and my housemate to play it with but could be my new thing could be one of my new things that, we'll see that'd be good i'd, I'd be into it <laughs> i'd be into it uh, maybe something for another community night. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> well, let's get into, before we <clears throat> go entirely off track, Love of Worker Bees, or Vasilisa Maligana. Before we get into the story itself, Matt, can you give me a little bit of context for this novel? I would love to, because the only thing I love more than this novel is the context. This is one of those that, like, you probably 
would never read if I didn't put this in the podcast. And I would have never read this unless one of my professors decided to me. And it was so good. It, it was it was something. really good. It was very weird, I would say. And that's what this time period is all about. Vasily Samuligina is set in the new economic policy period of the Soviet Union, which runs from approximately 1922 to 1928. This is between the end of the Russian Civil War and the beginning of the Stalinization of the Soviet economy, shall we say. And it's a period in which Lenin kind of instates the new economic policy or NIP, which allows kind of very small scale capitalist markets to operate in a way to help the Soviet economy rebuild after the just utter sheer devastation of the Russian Civil War, which the Bolsheviks, of course, won. And so this is where the novel is set. It is set in this period of, I mean, complete destruction of the countryside, of the industry, well, not just the industry, like literally every industry. And so you have kind of these communists trying to rebuild society in their communist fashion, however they would like. And then you have kind of the anxiety of capitalism creeping back and tempting them. And so there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on with that. There's a ton of weird stuff that happens through through gender roles uh, in, in this book specifically and also you know during the time and one of the one of the books that i rely on heavily for my understanding of this which i read about the same time as i read kalantai's book is a book from dr eric Naiman called sex in public it's about the way that sex was kind of talked about in the early soviet union and how that discourse came to kind of be incarnated in the early soviet ideology and one of the things he points to, which was an interesting way of conceptualizing the story that Cameron is about to, to summarize, is the idea uh, of this book comprising a, a small run of what could be considered a Soviet Gothic genre. Uh, the, the Gothic in Russian literature, of course, being present throughout the 19th century. This sort of has Gothic characteristics in the early 20th century, this idea of the ideological temptation of of the pure communist slipping back into the capitalist ways. How it gets extended to women, of course, is, you know, women being tempted just kind of in general, not just uh, ideologically, but also sexually, as he points out, sex is something that is not really uh, considered good or positive during this period. Childbirth also something that's not really considered good or positive. I, I think that might be a misconception about the Soviet Union that a lot of people have based on kind of when Stalin reinstates, like, I don't know, quote unquote, family values, or the nuclear family. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's probably not a good characterization of it, but I'm going to leave it there. I already said I like it. it. Soviet family values sounds like a good album. <laughs> or, or, or a bad like TV sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> And so there, there's a lot of a lot of reasons for this, as we can kind of get into later. But th this is a story about temptation, ideologically and otherwise. And it was written by Alexandra Kalantai, who was a major figure in the early Bolshevik government. She was one of the, I think, like two women to really kind of be involved at, at I mean, like super, super high level. But she was critical of the undemocratic internal party practices and in 1920, sided with the left-wing workers' opposition, which was defeated. And because of the fact that she was on the wrong side of the opposition, she spent her the rest of her life in 
basically what amounted to de facto exile. She worked in the foreign service. She was eventually promoted to being an ambassador, I believe, to Sweden. She was lucky in the sense that she was not purged uh, in the fact that she was not like, you know, literally executed, but she didn't really get to do very much after the 1920s. Mm -hmm. uh, she was relentlessly criticized even throughout the 1920s for advocating for what her opponents kind of characterized as, as free love. She also advocated for getting away from the traditional family structure and it's essentially like loving your comrade is kind of I guess what it boils down to and not not everybody was as as into this but still she's I think being recovered today in Russian studies mm -hmm. as a whole as as a figure of Marxist feminism and just kind of as an early Soviet thinker and she lays out a lot of her ideas in this novel and I I thought it was really cool yeah yeah absolutely it's not good writing per se it's not like I'm in awe of the prose but it's like it's just a cool thing that exists you know yeah i mean i i think that the themes are strong enough that uh when i read this i there's three short stories in this book as a whole of love of worker bees and i just powered through all three all in one setting which is not usually the case for these books i i find her to be a little bit repetitive like i think mm -hmm. like you definitely <laughs> could have cut out 10 pages here and there from some of this particular work but as a whole i, th I think reading her as kind of a thinker is is interesting yeah, and there's a lot to get to. Uh, let's cover the book itself. I'm going to be, as a phrase I find myself saying quite often on this podcast, trying to cover her briefly since a lot of the interesting things are not in the story itself, but rather in the rather intricate characterization, I would say. Uh, mm -hmm. So here, in short, is the story of Vasilisa Malikina. Vasilisa is, at the beginning of the story, basically an agitator or an organizer for the Soviet government at this time. Her main goal in life is really to get a communal house going, trying to get services for people who live there, etc, etc, and it's really not going well. She's dealing with a lot of problems with money, with rent, uh, with, with services, with just people who are not getting along in her house, and she's just kind of tired of it all. Uh, and that really goes until she gets a letter from her husband, Vladimir, and Vladimir's been working far away, uh, basically overseeing one of the new industries that the Soviet government is trying to put together. And he essentially tells her that he has gotten into a bit of trouble and he needs her help. And so being just absolutely in love with Vladimir, she drops everything immediately. She's already been so, so tired of dealing with the problems of her communal house that she's happy to go. And as she's on the train to uh, meet Vladimir, she kind of reflects on their history and, and how when the Bolshevik Revolution broke out, she was initially basically alienated from her parents because she supported the revolution and they were very much not in favor of it. In, in the process of becoming involved with the Bolshevik movement at the time, she happened to run into a figure who was not well-liked, known as the American, based on the fact that he had spent several years working in America prior to coming back to Russia for the revolution itself. And the American is known for his somewhat anarchistic tendencies, which basically means he really just doesn't want to do what the party tells him to do. Um, and he's basically always on the outs, and she kind of does not like him. She's always kind of arguing with him, and, but she is noticing him. And then that kind of, not exactly hatred, but annoyance kind of turns into them basically having a love affair. And for the next couple of years, as the revolution itself is happening, they have this really kind of torrid love affair, both working an incredible amount uh, in different areas, and they come to really respect each other. And every free moment, they find it in each other's arms, essentially. Following the revolution, they both move off in their own direction. Vladimir is selected to oversee 
uh, one of the new industries. She's trying to put together this communal house. So they kind of go their separate ways for a while until Vladimir once again gets in trouble and asks for her help. Once she arrives in this new town, she kind of very quickly realizes that something's very weird. One of the phenomena that appeared with the NEP were the uh, so-called NEP men and NEP women, which were basically the capitalist class re-emerging. -re there were various figures who uh, worked as, as merchants or sometimes just connectors for industries, etc., etc., who got pretty wealthy off of this system. And when she meets Vladimir, he's kind of a bit distant and he takes her to their new house, which he is admittedly excited to show her, which is a really big estate. It's got all this intricate uh, furniture, everything which has been hand-picked, they've got staff. Vasilisa is kind of taken aback. She just doesn't feel like this is a home she could live in because this is just not what she's used to. She's used to a basically one-room apartment, which she lived in before, during, and after the revolution. And she's very used to doing everything herself, um, which is something that Vladimir never liked. In fact, at one point when he was fighting in the war and he got wounded and comes back, um, he's basically always mad that they're in a one-room uh, apartment and, and always going off on her about the food they're eating and she's telling him well we're on rations and he says well your neighbors they give me potatoes and she says well I'm working so I can't go to the market why don't you do that and he's like well obviously I wouldn't I wouldn't do that so I guess we're just gonna eat kasha which I'm gonna refuse to eat because I think it's not fit for for me it's a bad move by anyone to rely only on eating kasha, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if you're in the middle of the revolution and you, you know, you're working all the time, I guess sometimes all you have is kasha. Yeah, it happens, but it's, it's that's tough. <laughs> it's especially tough on your on your gut and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, just your bowel movements. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but clearly, Vladimir in this new industry, which he's overseeing, which he's the director of, he's taken that that those complaints he had and and basically fixed them. She just feels so incredibly uncomfortable in this new environment, and the only thing that she can find solace in is the white acacia outside in the garden. But he kind of <laughs> he says, "No, no, no, we got to keep the windows closed, otherwise the the furniture is going to fade." So cuts her off from the garden, and the one thing she actually liked about this house. Over time, it becomes more apparent that the trouble may or may not be real. Uh, as you find out over the course of the story, Vladimir is continually in trouble with the party in one way or the other. It's never really made clear whether or not it's justified, although it's kind of hinted that a lot of it, although some of it is because he's not well-liked, a lot of it is actually justified, uh, especially when he's on the front lines and accused of thieving. But, but their life progresses, and it becomes increasingly clear that, that Vladimir is expecting um, Vasilisa to play the role of the director's wife. When she arrives in a dress which he had sent her material for, he kind of goes off on her and says, this, this style is so out of date. That's just nothing anyone would wear. It's so unflattering. And, you know, go back to your peasant garb, essentially, and I'll get you some, some clothes befitting a woman married to a director. Those things kind of just pile up where he continues to have these expectations for her. He invites over people for, for like three course meals and he needs her to use her own money to pay the servants to get them food for the meals or to entertain his guests or to set up for his guests and among whom are many figures she does not particularly like because when they come over, she is seeing nep men and um, uh, their wives who are, she kind of identifies as being part of the previous upper class social strata who she does not approve of and they're always talking about business, about shipping about packaging etc etc and these are all things that she's kind of feels are are antithetical to the revolution and she's really not big on on the nap as a whole and she's now stuck in this role because there's not that much work for her to do uh, other than working at a local uh, factory where primarily there are women and she kind of gets involved in organizing there 
because even in this new society, there's still a management class and still a worker class, and the workers are still fighting the managers and under the NEP system. And through this period, she kind of reflects more and more on how she and Vladimir are, they're trying to like have that passion they once had, but there's just kind of a weird wall. And she begins to think back on previous infidelity that Vladimir had and, and kind of the way she felt then. And that kind of is coming, that's kind of at the back of her psyche. And it kind of really comes to a, a boiling point when the workers at Vladimir's factory are striking. And when she comes home, she sees them out front and says, well, why are you out here? Come inside. Let's talk about it. And, and she feels in a kinship with the workers across Russia. And when she sees that they're striking because they want better wages, which is the exact same thing she's been working on striking or working with at the, the woman's factory, she says, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's come up with a plan to talk to management. And when Vladimir comes home, he just loses it on everyone out in the front yard, tells them to get out. He's you know, going to call the cops, basically. And he comes inside and sees they're inside his home, and he's even more furious. Everyone inside is very confused because they're saying, you know, but, but sir, your wife invited us inside. And she gets up in Vladimir's face and says, yeah, I did invite them. You know, you've got no right to tell them to leave. They've got legitimate concerns. He tells her, no, this is not happening. Get them out of my house. And in the following days, they just kind of realize that there is just a divide between them that's just popped up, and they really don't know what to do about that. Even in the face of that, Vasilisa finds herself getting sicker and sicker, and she spends more time inside and away from people, and the more she, time she spends in the house, the more alienated and isolated she feels. And, and Vladimir is kind of, he gets in trouble more than once, and she can really only get out to help him. That continues until she begins to suspect that something's up, because one of the things that Vladimir is accused of is having two homes, which doesn't initially really bother her too much, but over time, some things begin to not add up. Uh, some days he comes home and he's really upset about things that he really shouldn't be that upset about, or he's more upset than he than it really calls for, or when he gives her some silk for a dress, he happens to notice that he's got an equal amount of silk kind of hidden away in a cabinet, so she begins to wonder, you know, why? what are all these things that don't add up? And it maybe especially comes to a head when he gives her that silk and he says, oh, I know usually you make women's undergarments out of this, but, you know, you can you can make this into a nice shirt. And she's kind of sitting there like, well, how does he know what women's undergarments are made out of? Because um, <laughs> I certainly don't wear silk underwear. And talking to her friends and the staff, she comes to realize that her Vladimir is cheating on her again. And everyone in the town knows it except for her. She's the only one blinded by her love for her husband who doesn't know that he has been just rampantly cheating on her every chance he gets with a particular woman, Nina, this kind of sends her into a spiral. She realizes that life just can't be the same. And, and for the next portion of the book, there's really a lot of back and forth where she and her husband get into arguments over this. She reveals what she knows. Um, she kind of goes and stalks Nina a little bit by following her through the park. Eventually, she kind of comes to realize that we just we just can't live like this. We need to we need to separate. And she goes back to to Moscow and he transfers to a new location elsewhere. And when she's back in her communal home, kind of not sure, not certain what the next steps are. Uh, she she finds a letter, or she happens to a letter which she kind of stole from her husband, which was from Nina. She she reads it, and as she spends more time working with the people in her communal home who previously brought her so much grief, but are now kind of anchoring her back to what she wants to be doing. She kind of reads that letter, and and the hatred she had for Nina begins to develop into compassion. When she she initially assumed Nina was just trying to take advantage and, and steal money from her husband. And now sees that you know, this girl was was painfully in love with Vladimir, and and she herself has fallen so out of love with Vladimir at this point that she just begins to feel a kinship with this woman, where Vladimir had caused them both so much pain. And she writes her a letter and says, "Hey, you know what? If you love Vladimir, go ahead and love him. I, you know, I wish you only the best. I won't stand in the way. I, I moved on." 
and then stands in her communal home thinking, well, I, I am over this. I, I will be a comrade to, to Vladimir, but that part of my life is over. You know, I'm not really angry at them anymore. I just, I'm, I'm glad to be back at my work. And that is what's truly bringing me, after all this, I realize the only thing that really brings me meaning. So that's kind of a brief idea of what happens in the story. Obviously, there are a lot of intricacies throughout, which make it interesting to discuss. Kind of the conclusion, I guess, of the the thesis when she figures out that she's pregnant and one of the people in the communal home is asking her how she's going to raise the baby without a man. And she says, no, we're going to raise the baby. <laughs> it's going to be a communist baby, baby. Yeah. So she kind of says, oh, we're going to set up. I, I had like a, a group children learning center in, in that in the apartment complex. And uh, I'm the government took it away from us because of stupid things. So I'm going to get it back and we're all going to raise our kids together. Yeah, uh, most people criticize the end as being too optimistic, which maybe, yeah, I guess you could say that. With hindsight, yeah, you can easily say that, but yeah, I think it's I think it's easy with hindsight, but I think being written in the 1920s, it's it's more interesting not to look, not to read it backwards too much. Right, to read it more so as the story of of or at least an author who is trying to look forward and be optimistic about this new society that she's trying to build. And, you know, if it had worked, it would have been it would have been interesting for sure. So <laughs> let's talk about some of the major themes of this. All three stories in this book as a whole kind of address the same themes. Uh, this one does it obviously at the most length, but there's a lot to discuss here. Uh, is there anything that kind of sticks out to you initially, or at least when you are thinking about this book that really kind of comes to mind as the, the important things that really are the most interesting or, or fascinating? Um, I think there is a lot, a real, a real lot in here. I don't think Kalantai is the best prose fiction writer that exists on the face of the planet, of course. But I, I do think she does some interesting things. One of the main things is subtle characterization to see how the NEP ideology and NEP period was portrayed. And she <laughs> does that in a lot of kind of granular ways, I guess. she's. For instance, when she first meets Vladimir or Volodya, uh, speaking and whatnot, she's talking about how how fierce he speaks, and she says that she could imagine him, Volodya, courageously facing bullets, even if he did wear a starched collar. And so there's kind of like a lot of things uh, underscoring here, where if you're looking back at it from like 2021, you might be thinking, yeah, people have like iron collars or whatever. But th these are small details that are kind of meant to pick away at certain characters and to set up the maybe not foreshadowing, but to kind of say that these are how these people are and that's how they're going to be. And so I, I like on the kind of granular level, the way that Kalantai characterizes everybody throughout the book. I think she does an interesting job of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, I mean, to that point, one of the things that I found really interesting is when Vasilisa is being brought through the house, she really only has eyes for the garden because everything else is so foreign and almost unnatural to her. But the trees, nature, that, that's something that she can appreciate. And she just, over time, she just gravitates more and more towards the garden because once she's stuck in the house all day and she's sick and she doesn't have anything to do, and, and she's kind of like, thinks, I just want to be here forever before realizing, is this like, is this what the life of the idle rich or at least women of the, who did not have who didn't have any responsibilities and were not asked to be anything but wives. Is this what they felt? Is this that they would just sit out here and just like, just wish they could be among just like different species, essentially. I believe that this was a pretty primary characteristic of 
Now, I'm not an expert on Gothic literature by any means whatsoever, but on my, on my reading about the Soviet Gothic, this was a, a particular scene which scholars picked up on mm-hmm. as the character being trapped in essentially this sort of Gothic-esque mansion of temptation and desire of the net period is basically what it characterizes. I mean, this has probably been uh, an estate that was collectivized from a wealthy landowner that was supposed to be divvied up, but has instead just fallen into the hands of her husband. And so she's kind of, she's trapped in this sense of temptation the entire time Mm -hmm. that she's in the house trying to maintain her own sense of like ideological purity quote unquote yeah even when she's kind of being forced into basically a recreation of the old order mm-hmm. when she first arrives she meets a servant and goes to shake their hand it was like well you know how are you doing and her and vladimir scolds her saying well it wouldn't do for the lady of the house to to show respect or basically treat a servant as an equal and, and she's just kind mm-hmm. of taken aback like why wouldn't they be my equal we're all workers, essentially, mm-hmm. except um, <clears throat> she's now no longer a worker. She is now part of the management class. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting to look at in this period. It takes some old concepts that you would see from a lot of 19th century literature that posit it kind of as a natural sort of thing, even if they are critiquing it. It's just kind of how it is. And now you get something where it's you're inside the head of a character where that is very unnatural for her to do. Gender roles. Yeah, that's a also, big one. I mean, that's the main, that's kind of the main shebang here. <laughs> um, yep, yep. A lot to deal with. I, I mean, the cross section, yeah, a lot to deal with. The cross section between gender and characterization, super interesting, especially with uh, Vasilisa. The shortened form, Vasya, is a boy's name, and she's frequently described as being boyish. Even after, uh, towards the beginning, middle-ish of the book, she has a typhus attack that leaves her bedridden for quite a while and kind of just alters even more so the way that that she looks. They shave her hair off as a result of this, and Vladimir says to her, "You you shouldn't worry about that. My Vasya looks just like a boy now. That's what she always was, really. And he doesn't say that in like a mean way. He just kind of says it in like, well, I don't know. I think he's saying it in an endearing way, but also you could understand how one would not take that perhaps the most endearingly. But I think that that's a little bit of the point of the changing concept of of gender and what it means to be a Soviet citizen. This idea of, of femininity is not what it once was. Right. And... And, and she, she's really valued, I think, for that, for representing that change. Yeah, because as a person, what people note about her is that she's efficient and she's good at what she does. And throughout the book, she's kind of gone to as someone who we can rely on to do the job, essentially. And even when she returns back to Moscow, the whole communal house who, at the beginning of the book, they kind of were tired of her, realized that she was solving all of their problems, essentially. So they basically <laughs> surround her, like begging her <laughs> to save them from their issues. But I think it's interesting that she herself and her image relies on the work she does. Um, and, and her husband repeatedly cheats on her throughout the book. I think there are at least three, uh, three times, maybe more, and that when he's at the front and he is charged with basically stealing, he, she goes to help him out and she finds that she's been sleeping with maybe a nurse or just some other woman. Of course, later in the book, there's Nina, who he carries on a prolonged relationship with. And then throughout earlier in the book, when when they're in Moscow itself, I believe he sexually assaults her cousin, which um, <clears throat> it really shows some of the changing um, some changing ideas around consent that that was that's just kind of like a small feature of the book. They're like, yeah, you know, he, she's like, yeah, he punched me and threw me down in the bed. And then Vasilisa is like, well, you know, he's just joking around, um, which oof. oof. Yikes. Um, 
yeah, but <clears throat> throughout the book, whenever she kind of runs into the woman that he is he is cheating on her on, like that is uh, even though her self image of what is good and on who she is really relates to the work she does, she can't help but focus on on like the features of these women. She kind of goes on about uh, about their bodies and like especially their lips or you know et cetera et cetera. And and so that's something that that despite her probably you know wanting to change that to to like make your self worth based on the the contributions that you were giving to your society or to new Soviet society, she can't help but see when when her husband and as you know, her husband's not getting away from that in the same way that she wants to, that he's still going after conventionally attractive women, even if they are totally against the revolution, as Nina happens to be. I, yeah, you picked up on the lips thing. That's a big, I think, signifier for Kantai in this mm -hmm. book. I, I think that, yeah, you're you're right, but I think that it's meant to show that her husband is basically the new enemy. He's not what we should strive to be. Vasilisa is who we should strive to be. Oh, I think I agree. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, she really does hyperfixate on these women's bodies and these things that I would say probably today are things that we would ascribe to being po like positive or certainly by no means negative. She, I, I think in this context, the way that she thinks about them or the way that they are depicted by Kalantai are not positive features. These traditional feminine look is bourgeois is what it is. And we should not strive to be like that. We should instead strive to be, in a way, almost more gender fluid. Yeah, I, there's a point later in the book when she's kind of, she's hanging out the park with one of her servants, and they're trying to figure out what Nina looks like. She wants to know the woman who her husband is cheating on her with. And one of the things that she notes about her, among many other things, is she kind of says her lips, it looks like they're covered in blood. And her, her the servant basically says, um, Madam, that's, that's lipstick. And she's kind of taken <laughs> aback by the idea of, of lipstick, which I, is a good character moment for just telling you about where her focus has been in life, which has been just on her work. So much that lipstick is a foreign concept. You want me to take you away into left field? Do it. Uh, so Eric Naiman talks a little bit about this in his book, which I got to preface because I'm stealing his idea <laughs> to adapt <laughs> into this. And I think he does talk about yeah. this. Uh, there, there's a lot of ideas uh, as to why the early Soviets didn't like the idea of childbirth. And this to me, I, I don't know if anyone else will be persuaded by this argument, but I found it fascinating, which is that it, it doesn't align with the kind of Marxist idea of linear history, as, as opposed to a kind of straight line of history. Women don't fit into this because one of their roles is giving birth to children, which is inherently a circular sort of motion. And that it is it is repetitive. We're, you know, continuing to give birth to, you know, to new life. And so these sort of traditional feminine ideas these things of these motifs of of blood of red of childbirth are assigned very negative things throughout kalantai's work she actually she talks about uh, one of the women that her husband was cheating with it was clear like uh she like had her period in the bed where they were sleeping so there's like motifs of menstruation even throughout this work which are assigned negative bourgeois connotations because of the fact that they are repetitive and not linear i mean this book was this book was fascinating to me the result it, it gets it gets even weirder than what i'm talking about in the podcast right now but it, it's interesting to see it apply directly to kalantai who was a theorist and also a, a writer <laughs> assign these things that we either don't really give much thought about or we assign positive values to them quite negative things in this book yeah, I mean, those features pop up throughout the book where, um, for 
for example, perfume is uh, basically only uh, an example of how Vladimir is cheating on her. At least that that's mm-hmm. its place. Uh, any traditional femininity in this book is its only relationship is to women who basically Vladimir is cheating on on uh, Vasilisa with. Uh, the only ex- example, or the only counterexample I can think of, is one nep man who happens to be married to kind of a former high society woman who she kind of com- comments negatively on. But any other specific feature of traditional femininity, as you pointed out, really is associated with the women who um, Vladimir is engaged with, which is interesting. So, how did you feel about about this one in relationship to the idea of the collapsing personal life? I, I seem to think that it was a good indicator of where that debate was headed. In terms of the intersection between your work being your life's purpose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because this what really kind of struck me about this book, if I can kind of take it away from your question for a moment, is that I don't think it's... Mm-hmm. it's if you were to read this right now and you changed a few features, you could probably like more or less recognize it in the modern context. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, in the future of the discussion of gender roles or this drive to work because obviously in the Soviet Union you do have that collapse between personal life and the your work life where your work life is your personal life because that's your contribution to uh, you know socialist society even in the modern era we are always driven to be <laughs> if I can editorialize for a moment driven to be constantly producing or learning or doing something which makes us better employees or better people to be working in different markets or you need to be training coding or you know, whatever. Everyone needs to learn coding, no matter what industry oh, you're in. Stop <laughs> trying to get me to code, please. I would not like that. Yeah, and I think that this, in the Soviet context, or even in our modern job hellscape context, uh, an interesting look into something that that doesn't view it negatively, really, because really Vasilisa's salvation comes from re- returning to her work as as her life, because her personal life with of Vladimir is subject to so many things of, obviously, if you got a man, he's going to cheat on you. That's just a given. Well, at least it's a given for the women in this society that if you just leave him alone, he's, what can you do? You can't blame him. That's just what they do. And, and every feature of her personal life that's not connected to her work really ends up having a negative repercussion for her. It's really only mm-hmm. once she entirely subsumes her personal life into her work that she begins to feel okay. You know, even her own child. That relates to the the cliche, the thing she's trying to set up to teach all children in her apartment complex. That that is that positive features to that. And the last personal tie she has is with Vladimir, and she cuts that off and says he's no longer Vladimir the American that she loved. He's just Vladimir, and he's a comrade somewhere out there working as a director of a factory. Yeah, it's it's presented in different terms, I guess, than we present it today, probably. Yeah. It's not just work versus personal. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. In this case, the personal is political and the political is everything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to separate to just say, okay, this is work and this is leisure, which I think is probably a bit of a difference between this and modern day. I, I feel like, I guess, yeah, I would agree that there's a pressure to monetize your hobbies today, like... <laughs> For instance, creating a Patreon at patreon.com slash Tiffy Tolstoy for your your podcast. Um, But it's clear that this is kind of leisure. This is on our own time, whereas is is here i think the the public life the political life it, she, she can't help but let it consume this vestige of the old life which is in a way her personal life with vladimir and it becomes uh, clear to her that she can't continue to coexist in the idea of what a woman is in society and what a woman should do especially as a wife and a partner in this new communist society his expectations are part of what is 
I guess like tempting for lack of a better word, her to fall back to the capitalist bourgeois kind of old notions of society. And she has this like positive thing pulling her forward, even if it needs to consume the other aspects of her life. Right. Getting over things like, I don't know if you would agree with this, but personal jealousy where she goes from treating Nina as like a competitor really, or the woman who's ruining her life, but rather as uh, just another woman who, even though she is an anti-communist, is someone who is um, painfully in love with Vladimir. And, you know, she's like, I feel I feel sympathy for you because I know what you're going through. And she goes from the, the stage of, I don't know if this is how Kalantai would describe it, but like bourgeois jealousy to kind of a, a socialist empathy where she is not looking at uh, Vladimir as, as her husband, who is now being, uh, is now sleeping with someone else, but rather um, Vladimir as, as a comrade who happens to have feelings for uh, another person in her society which she kind of comes to and says, well, why should I not feel for, why should I not be empathetic to her struggle as much as, as my own? Yeah, I guess it's kind of her, in a, in a way, her application of her like free love idea. I don't know if, if free love is the best translation or the best summation of what she believed, but. Yeah, I think that kind of idea is better addressed or not addressed, but maybe more concisely addressed in one of the later short stories, uh, Sisters, uh, in this book, which I think is really fascinating. And I would love to talk mm -hmm. about it another time, but. Um, yeah, very interesting in the, the kind of that there are certain things which kind of maintain, for example, um, using prostitute as like a, a term of denigration for women, which kind of mm -hmm. begins to turn on its, on its head throughout the book where I don't, I don't think it's in, in, in this this short story where she begins to say, well, really, most sex workers or prostitutes that I've known were better than society women. They were they were loyal, good people. And she begins to turn that idea on its head, but it still persists and it's still there. And that's still sometimes used as a term of denigration, really. Yeah, she does. She does get criticized a bit for kind of. I think some groups of people would say she is a a Marxist feminist, and other groups of people would say, yeah, that that could be true. But she also kind of does some. She kind of does some problematic things in her works that <laughs> I think perhaps she wanted to be fighting against, but she still kind of does I, I don't know she's she's really complex that's part of the reason why i've enjoyed reading some of her theory and reading of course this this short story novel i don't know what to call it it's like 180 pages you decide novella novella i suppose <laughs> no i it's i really enjoyed like i said i just plowed through all three short stories in this collection really enjoyed it would really look forward to to reading more of her i think there's just so much um as you pointed out nuance that we haven't even addressed in the way she approaches and kind of addresses the world and sometimes kind of ways that you wouldn't expect. I mean, there's certain things like the idea of, oh, well, this is just kind of how men are, that they're they're going to cheat on you and maybe they'll, you know, they just can't help it. They might just assault your cousin if you happen to leave them alone together, which are mm -hmm. obviously um, quite, I don't know if she herself believed that or if that's just her restating ideas in society at the time. And then other times where she's quite empathetic in, in a really interesting way, or maybe less interesting today, but for the time in the later short story Sisters, where a woman who is initially like, oh, her husband's bringing home prostitutes and she's like initially angry until she finally sits down with one of these women and they talk about their life stories and she's like, oh my God, every single person who I've been kind of denigrating is, is a person who's had, who's had her own story and really these are more my, my sister than, than my husband is, is a person to me, so I should rely on them and I should help them, which was interesting. Well, uh, I think that's about, there's obviously a lot we could cover here, but that's kind of what we took away from this reading, or at least one of the, some of the major themes that really stuck out to us. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it, Cameron, and I hope you listening will pick it up and read it, since I'm assuming you probably <laughs> didn't have it on your bookshelves prior <laughs> to this. 
Uh, Cameron, before we totally wrap up here, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? How drunk did you end up? I didn't expect to be this this drunk uh, off of one beer, but probably because I've had a light breakfast and lunch, I'm, I'm probably like a, um, not that I want to compare myself to this dude, but in Sisters, um, the woman's, the main oh character's husband becomes kind of a drunkard. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. definitely like a six, definitely feeling like stumbling home to, to, to my wife and kids, uh, just absolutely plastered. Yeah, boy. Yeah. How about you? Where are you? Um, I, I'm somewhere, I'm somewhere along, along that spectrum. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't have anyone funny in, in the story to compare myself to. There's no one funny to compare yourself to. I feel bad about the comparison I've made. Nothing in the story was funny. That's the, <laughs> that's the problem for this end segment. Um, but I'm, I'm probably with you five, five or six. It's, it's been a good night. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Getting away from us trying to find something funny about this deeply unfunny and very serious stale. What are we reading next week, Matt? Oh, you fool. You thought we were going to read something next week. No, no, no. Next week, we're going to be stepping away from the reading slightly uh, and into the world of adaptation. We're going to be talking with Ali Pitts from Russophiles Unite movie podcast about Joe Wright's 2012 adaptation and Alexander Zarki's 1967 adaptation of Anna Karenina. That is a kind of prelude to our Summer of Anna Karenina series that we're going to be starting May 7th, where we're going to be reading the Anna Karenina novel, all eight parts. Uh, we're going to be doing every other week releases we've got some some special guests lined up we've got a good time lined up overall so we're going to be doing a, a, a bit of a prelude to that talking about some adaptations why they're good and or bad mostly bad and <laughs> ali's a super cool guy so we uh look forward to you hearing that episode yeah really enjoyed the conversation i will say that normally we don't assume that you've read whatever we're talking about uh, however, if you're going into that episode, I would recommend some familiarity with the story of Anna Karenina, or at least watching one or both of those movies. Unlike books, it's actually only about a two-hour investment for either movie, um, so you can watch either or both. Uh, they both have their ups and downs. The Zarki version can be found on YouTube, and Joe Wright's 2012 adaption can be found in various places around the internet on streaming services. So, very approachable. You can just watch them. You don't need any knowledge before getting into it, and then we'll... Uh, tell you why next week whatever whichever one you decided to watch was either good or bad depending on um, <clears throat> not depending uh, <laughs> watch the 1967 one it's free and <laughs> um, i'll say that for next week but you should watch them and before we let you go we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons who are becoming so thick i can hardly say them in one breath we've we've got jeff Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Daniel, Paige, Darren, Lou, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland at the end of my breath. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. Normally we would ask for the Daniels to once again differentiate themselves, but we actually talked to one of the Daniels the other day on our community night, and so now we, uh, instead of asking for both of you to give us your SSNs, uh, we now have known Daniel, and we only need the SSN and or address of unknown Daniel, so get in contact. Yes, yes. get in contact, please. (laughs) The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs>